Hello, you're listening to Wine Blast. I'm Peter Richards. She's Susie Barry. Uh, we're both masters of wine who uh, happen to be married to each other. Clearly need to get out more. Uh, and we are once again in danger of getting our geek on. Look at us. Oh, I think speak for yourself. Um, I usually do. I, I think what we're focusing <laughs> no on... authority. Oh, sorry. sorry. Mm. I think what we're focusing on today is a really interesting topic, whether you're a wine geek or not. Mm. It may seem a bit niche... But actually, it brings together so many different, interesting things about wine and wine making. I mean, yeah. we, we mm. talked about additives, didn't we, in a negative sense in our episode on natural wine. Yeah. Yeah. But I think good additives, and this one in particular, don't always get enough airtime. Mm. Good additives, there we mm. are. Uh, fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, yeah, fine. And, and I suppose, you know, our story does start with a, a sort of really fun experiment, doesn't it? It so does, it does. So Maybe this isn't pure <laughs> geekery. I was kind of hoping it was, actually. Anyway, anyway uh, so, yeah, no such luck. This programme is all about dosage, uh, that magical addition that's, I don't know, sort of like the cherry on the cake of some of the finest sparkling wines on the planet. Does mm. that make sense? Does it work? I'm not sure that's quite enough. I think we're probably going to need a slightly more comprehensive explanation than that. <laughs> well, I thought um, we could leave it at that, to be honest. So that's going to be <laughs> that's a job done. Off to have a glass of fizz. No, no, no fair enough. OK, so I, I never really like those cherries anyway. No. Do you? No. Well, it depends on the cherries. No. Yes, Should we not go down that route? Because I'm not sure. We're no, never, no. It's a long episode, I reckon, this it's one. It's going to be a long episode. <laughs> yeah. Let's just get started. So, so we'll definitely recap on what dosage is exactly, why it's used, um, its history and its future, uh, including some pretty fun experiments along the way, as I've already alluded to, um, the latest of which may change the course of wine as we know it. Wine does have some quite strict rules. You know, I've never been a great fan of rules. So, you know, this is a, a perfectly legal product that other people could could emulate. It could become a new category in, in wine. We heard it here first. Stirring stuff from English Master of Wine, Justin Howard Sneed. We'll be hearing more from Justin on some fascinating dosage experiments mm. he's done with his own heart of gold English sparkling wine. Mm. Also joining us are legendary sparkling winemakers Jean-Baptiste Lecaillon of Champagne Louis Rodera and... All the way from down under, the magician who is Ed Carr of Accolade and House of Arras. What a lineup! Yeah, so we better get cracking. We we, we had, we and had and I think we should start with what dosage is. Okay, and it's all to do with how traditional method sparkling wine like champagne is made. Mm. So first of all, you make a still base wine, which you put into bottles. You add some sugar and yeast, and you seal the bottles. The wine inside referments. And that's how the bubbles are created. Yay. But don't get excited yet. We're not done. We're not done. We've got dosage. Because after that, you need to get the yeast out. So mm. what the winemaker does is gradually turn the bottles upside down, freeze the neck and uncap the wine. Because, and because of the pressure inside the bottle, that frozen plug of wine and yeast in the neck shoots out. Yes, the yeast has settled down. Yeah, the, the yeast yeah. has settled down into the neck, freeze it take the crown cap off or, you know, whatever the bottle sealed with, that shoots out, that little plug shoots, shoots out. And that's the process called disgorging. I think you're doing a wonderful job of this. I could just listen to you all day. Um, <laughs> you I, often have to, yeah, poor you. I'm <laughs> surprised you still say I'm you could. I'm entirely unused to do. Uh, disgorging, it's always a word that troubles me slightly. But anyway, let's move oh, on. Uh, let's not go there. Uh, gorge, something about... Anyway, mm, mm, uh, so mm. the disgorging is now done. Uh, the yeast is out and the wine is clear. Yay. Yeah, we are. Woohoo. So, uh, but, but, and there's also that but. There's always a but. You've got less liquid in the bottle. You have. And and that's a boo, isn't it's it? It's not good. That is not good. You know, 
And we don't like being shortchanged. Not when it's fine champagne or English sparkling wine. Especially you Yorkshire folk, you know. <laughs> so the bottle is stopping so up. <laughs> this is, this is right. where... Sorry. Shh, this is the important bit. This is where dosage comes in. So it's usually a very sweet mixture of wine and sugar. The French call it the liqueur d'expédition. Uh, and this small drop of dosage doesn't just serve the purpose of topping up, uh, but also crucially allows the winemaker a chance to fine tune the flavours and balance of the wine. Yeah, and this is the key bit that we're going to be exploring in this programme. Mm. But I think let's start with the basics. I think yeah. some people might be quite surprised, to be honest, that sugar or sweetening can just be added like this to yeah, wine. Yeah, no, I think that's true, actually. It's worth mentioning. It is relatively rare you know, in wine. It doesn't tend to happen in normal table wine. You know, if there is a, a small amount of residual sugar in those, it, it's just the natural sugar from the grapes that hasn't been fermented out, isn't mm -hmm. it? Um, rather than being added. But I think it may surprise some people to learn that, you know, that dosage is actually the norm when it comes to some of the finest, most expensive champagnes. You know, almost all of them have had sugar or sweetening added in varying amounts. But it does tend to be a pretty small amount, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And that's important to say. So what is it? Six to 10 grams per litre is pretty common now in terms of sweetness for top champagne style wines. Yeah. That's what... Well, um, in terms of dosage. In terms of dosage. So yeah. that works out at what? About four to eight grams, grams of sugar. Of sugar. In a 75 centiliter yeah, bottle. In a, in a standard which is bottle. What, less than one gram per glass or whatever. Mm. But, you mm. know, crucially, it's not done to make the wine sweet. Uh, it's done to make what can be a pretty acidic or certainly very dry sparkling wine taste more balanced and, and approachable um, and also more complex. Yeah, because because the whole point of the traditional or, or champagne method is to make grapes grown in a cool climate palatable mm. despite <laughs> their. High acidity, yeah. that was always yeah. the point, and it still is. And that's done partly by letting the wine mature with the yeast cells, which give mm. a certain richness to the flavour and the texture, and then also by the addition of the dosage. Yeah, and it's, it's hardly as if this is a sort of slapdash, um, easy fix for a dodgy wine. You know, it makes for <laughs> it some of the... It can be. The, well, it can be, but, you know, but no, it really... Not, you know, not usually. So these are some of the finest, most complex and rewarding wines on the planet. You know, it's, it's a, a time-honed process that's been going on for centuries. Yeah, and it just it just works. Um, mm. But it is, it is probably worth mentioning at this point that the trend over time has been to ever more precise dosage with less and less sweetness. Yeah, good word, good word there. And it's, it's very true. It's a trend that has a long history, you know. So I was surprised to learn when I first started looking into this that the sparkling wine we now know as champagne was originally a sweet wine. It was, yeah, um, yeah, well, very I sweet. Know you know, I, yeah. I don't think many people know that. You know, from the no. very start in what, the late 17th century when the, the traditional champagne method was invented, making it sparkling, you know, the dosage was really, really sweet. So yeah, it yeah. wasn't added to make a balanced wine. It was just to influence the final style of the wine itself into, yeah, and, a, into a sweet wine. And, and actually, that's why the French have the habit of serving champagne with pudding or dessert, yeah. you know, because it was originally a dessert wine. Yeah. And But I think, you know, let's be honest, things have moved on since then. Uh, and now almost all champagne is what we would call dry. Mm. And it, it it really doesn't work at all well with pudding, though um, that doesn't always stop people serving it that way. It doesn't. We've had many <laughs> wonderful <laughs> occasions when we've mm. had the it's two separately. It's interesting. <laughs> be fair to say. Anyway, so yeah, anyway, most champagne and that. similar styles of sparkling wine today are made in a dry style. So in French, the term is brut, 
Uh, and it's legally defined as a wine that has a sweetness level of less than 12 grams per litre, uh, though frequently the actual level is, is lower. Than yeah, I mean, most, most non-vintage champagnes are around 10 grams these days. Yeah, Some are less, you know, but around, absolutely. I would say that's nine, probably about eight, an nine, average. Ten, yeah. Um, eight, eight to 10, but yeah. Brute is, brute is the most common term you will see on a bottle. Most it? bottles, um, yeah, yeah. But you may also see brute nature or zero dosage which means very dry, so less than three grams per litre of sweetness. Then mm. extra brut is under six grams per litre of sweetness. And then there are the sweeter styles. So uh, just, to, just to recap, uh, extra dry is 12 to 17 grams per litre. Actually, that, is, that is confusing, extra dry. It, all of these I terms mean, are guaranteed to confuse, confuse you. I mean, why would we make it easy? Why would the wine world make something yeah. easy? Extra well, dry? What the hell is that? That should be drier than Drier than dry. dry. No, yeah, no, no. no. Yeah. So anyway, these, this is just what it is. And so I'm just extra dry has it. a bit. Yeah, go on, carry on. Extra dry, 12 to 17. Sec. Which sounds to like 32. dry again, 17 yep. to 32. And yeah. then 32 to 50 is demi-sec. Um, and that's, that's probably the most common form of slightly sweet champagne, sort of medium sweet champagne that you'll, you'll come across. It, absolutely. Both, so that's, or that's, that's the kind of, so just remember that demi-sec, which is the most common one, is 32 to 50, which is not, you know, crazy sweet. No. It's just sort of sweet and rich. Yeah. And then do is over 50 grams per litre. That's really rare. Very find. rare. Very rare. Yeah. Yeah. So so as as I was saying, over over time, the trend has been ever drier. Um, now, we're going to talk about this and zero dosage a bit later on, but it is worth noting because it's quite a hot topic. Yeah. Well, you did your Master of Wine dissertation on the subject didn't you uh, for my sins I did yeah yeah but we'll come on to that um <laughs> I also said um I also said that dosage has got ever more precise yeah. and and I use that word very deliberately because back in the day it could be a bit like the wild west on the dosage front couldn't it let's be honest <laughs> the good old days yeah and, and you, know, you know what to I mean fair, a um, bit of slightly mad experimentation lies behind many a successful innovation, doesn't it? Oh, it does. Um, it does. But yeah, they did throw any old stuff in back then, didn't they? Um, yeah. in, in Tom Stevenson and Essie Avalon's brilliant uh, Christie's World Encyclopedia of Champagne and Sparkling Wine book, um, they cite Mumine, who was writing in 1873, who listed the following ingredients normally found normally in the liqueur d'expedition okay, of, of champagne. Go on. Port, cognac. Fismas dye. I've no idea how to pronounce that, but it's basically Fismes elderberry. Fismas. Go on, go on. Tell us what it elderberry is. Elderberry with cream of tartar and alum. Um, kirsch, raspberry Weird. brandy, uh, and saturated solutions of alum, tartaric acid, and tannin. <sighs> no wonder champagne got the party going. Crikey! I mean, that's, that is a lot of stuff. All of that packed into a bottle. I mean, really? It's packing a punch, isn't it? It makes us look a bit tame today, doesn't it? Um, We're way too cautious, aren't we? It's common knowledge, isn't it, that additives and flavourings used to be a bit more common in the Mm. old days in wine, you know, like pine resin to help, you know, keep wine from going off in ancient Greece uh, and Egypt. And and I think they recently found some evidence of vanilla, didn't they, being added um, from amphora found in Israel. From years ago, yeah. But, you know, I I think in general, winemakers tend to muck around a lot less these days, don't they? They do. um, they do to some extent, but I think there are still various ways to tinker, if you like. I mean, for example, there are different ingredients for the sweetness you can use in dosage. You know, you can you can have cane sugar or you can have beet sugar or you can have RCGM, which is a sweet sort of neutral spirit made from grapes. Yeah, um, re- rectified, rectified concentrated grape must. Grape must. It's not oh, the most yeah. romantic of titles, Pretty is it? Um, I think, yeah, RCGM sort of almost sounds better. Um, I mean, in certain places you can still adjust the acidity with the dosage, um, but I think the main way of of tinkering is actually via the choice of wine you mm. add to top things up. Mm. Yeah, so this is this is it. This is where we're going. Some people isn't just it? use the same wine that they're disgorging, which sounds a bit confusing. But you know, what they'll do is they'll they'll sacrifice a few bottles 
of the wine they're disgorging, mix that with the sugar, and that's what gets added, added back into the remaining bottles that are the same that need topping up. Which sounds a normal thing to do, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah, it's relatively normal. Yeah. But, you know, you don't have to do that. You know, some people have batches of very special wine they keep just for the dosage. For example, um, Louis Rodre has a store of wine kept in oak that's famous for being even better than Cristal, their top wine. Um, and that's what they use to, you know, season their younger wines through the dosage. It'd be quite nice to taste that, wouldn't it? I know. I wonder if we can get in get the keys to the cellar. Anyway, right. we'll come on to that in a bit when we talk to Jean-Baptiste Le Caillon. Um, but what we're driving towards here is this thought. If you can add pretty much any wine to your dosage, and there are so many brilliant wines in the world nowadays, why not play around a bit and see if you can make something even better? Mm. You know, breaking free of the shackles of conformity in a bid to make something <laughs> a bit new and different. The X-Men approach <laughs> to wine. Yes, we go. come on. Uh, wine doesn't tend to do this thing very often. We're trying to trying to big it up, dramatic, make it more dramatic yeah. than it is. But you know, I mean, fine wine like champagne style sparkling is it tends to be pretty traditional, doesn't it? But mm. um, it's exciting when things do actually New happen. Things happen. And that's what's happened, and the person who's made it happen is Justin Howard Sneed, an, an English master of wine who does many things. Who we uh, heard earlier, one of which is making wine, uh, both in the south of France in yep. the domain of the Bee, uh, and also in England. Um, and that's what we're going to focus on, because Justin has been playing around with the dosage for his English fizz, Heart of Gold, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, he's been using various fortified and dessert wines uh, as the sweetening agents, mm-hmm. hasn't he? And we're going to share our, our chat with Justin in just a bit. But before we do that, mm. he sent us these experimental wines and mm. we've tasted them. Mm. Now, just to explain, the base wine for all six was Heart of Gold, his his English sparkling wine. It was the 2014 vintage and it's a blend of Chardonnay, Pinot Noir and Pinot Meunier, which has been aged for five years on the mm. lees. And then in terms of dosage, the wines were as follows. So the first wine was zero dosage, so the, the control, if you like, just that wine, nothing else added. The other five were mm. all sweetened to the same level, eight grams per litre total residual sugar, using a mixture of our romantic RCGM and, and this is the fun bit, far more romantic, totally different wines. Mm, yeah, so one bottle used Sautern, one used Tokai. Uh, the others included were Port, Madeira and Sherry. Now, only 18 bottles of each style were made. We were we were quite privileged to taste these, weren't we? We really were, actually. Um, Thank you, Justin. Talk about a limited production run. <laughs> we did enjoy them it, a lot. It made for an absolutely fascinating oh my goodness it did it did it really really did and dare i say it i'm not sure this is a good thing to say but uh, for once we more or less agreed did we not we did sort of yeah yeah yeah. but to start with at the beginning the one place we didn't agree the zero dosage the control (laughs) wine we both thought it was good Mm. actually pretty well balanced which is rare for an English fizz with no dosage to be honest but i definitely thought it was a more attractive drink than you did yeah. Didn't I? You did. Um, I just liked it from the off, this one. I don't know why. Anyway, yeah, it was I really know. nice and fruity. And yes. Yeah, yeah I, no, I thought no, it worked I, well. I for me, it was just a classic thing with, with zero dosage wines, excuse me. Um, individual elements were admirable, but, you know, as a whole, it was just a little bit unforgiving and slightly sort of, I don't know, joyless as an experience. It just felt slightly muted, I guess. It, almost a sort of disappointment it wasn't more or it could be something more, you know, like... Mm someone singing under a duvet that kind of it's just a bit kind of (laughs) if certain people were singing under a duvet i think i'd be quite happy that's very true you know (laughs) it it just felt a bit abrupt and and sort of slightly off kilter 
as an experience. I, I, li- I liked it. Okay. Um, well, anyway, fair, but, fair but, enough. but let's move on because where we both agreed was as soon as the dosage entered the picture, the, the wines, they were transformed. Mm. They were still dry, but with a different kind of depth and complexity yeah. and yeah. length and just different dimensions of mm. flavour. Mm. So we both thought the, the Tokai was the best, mm. didn't we? Mm. Um, now, the, to be specific, it was the Royal Tokai Five Petonius. 2013 mm. blue label. So this is a Hungarian dessert wine. Yeah. Um, and the reason we liked it was because it was subtle enough not to dominate, but it added to mm. the complexity with some honeyed orangey notes. I mean, very typical of Tokai. Um, and also it made the wine seem more energetic and mm. and cogent. Somehow it added to the acidity, but also made it rounder, which is an odd sort yeah. of combination. But it did, and, yeah. and you could really see this this one ageing and developing well. Yeah, it was an intriguing wine, wasn't it? It um, really was. Which was great. It was just really exciting. Yeah, yeah um, no, it was it was. And it we was compared terrific. it specifically to the Sautern, didn't we? Yeah. Uh, which was the Sautern used was Chateau Coutet 2001, just for interest. Um, now, that didn't work as well because... The Sautern sort of dominated, dominated the wine more, yeah. didn't it? It was, you know, those botrytis aromas really came through and, and just mm. jarred a bit. Mm. Um, you know, it, I mean, maybe there was a bit too much in. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, no, perhaps. Yeah. I mean, it did, it did definitely make for a lovely rounded palate profile, you know, really sort of succulent and, and sort of quite sexy in a way. And some of the honey flavour did, honey sort of flavours did work well, didn't they? You know, you were yeah. talking about what... Um, Kumquats and what was I talking about? Tangerines. What what on earth was I talking about? <laughs> I, don't know. I lost track at that point. But, you, know, <laughs> you stopped listening. <laughs> as a whole, it was just a little bit too crazy. It really wasn't yeah. bad, yeah. but it was just a little bit off the charts. Yeah, well, talking Didn't of crazy, quite. let's talk about the port finish. Oh, um, yeah. So this was <laughs> yes, Taylor's this 10-year-old yeah. tawny, again, just for interest. And this was another one that, mm. that really didn't work for mm. us. Um, you know, firstly, the colour was a bit of an odd pinky colour, which is yeah, is fine, um, but yeah. more importantly, obviously the flavour, the oxidative, slightly jammy fruit nature of the tawny port just seemed to to jar with the freshness and vibrancy of, of the of the sparkling wine. It was it was like a, a dissonance in the tasting mm, experience yeah. that was f- just hard to get past. Um, it, it seemed a bit of a clash for yeah, us, which is weird because you know we love tawny, don't we? We do. Oh yeah, I mean but tawny it's, on its own. It yeah. just didn't work for some reason. No, and well, fair enough. No, no, that's part of the point of doing these experiments, isn't it? Um, I, although you know. Um, well, what did work, by contrast, was the Madeira finish, yeah. uh, which was the Blandy's 15-year-old Bual. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's odd because it's not worlds away from the Tawny Port. Uh, yeah, it? this is where we couldn't quite work it no. out. But we had some theories, didn't we? Yeah, I, well, we thought one thing was maybe like the Tokai, you know, Madeira is a case of another naturally higher acid wine, which tied in really well with the fizz because the fizz, is a yeah. lot of it is about high acidity mm. and energy. Um and, you know, it's very specific oxidative notes seem to harmonise better with the wine. So, you know, what Madeira delivers is sort of nutty baked fruit muscovado characters. And that somehow sort of accentuated the autolytic character of, of the of the sparkling wine. You know, yeah. perhaps it was a bit more obvious, a bit less subtle. It was compared definitely to the less Tokai, subtle, wasn't it? Definitely but, less subtle. You know, maybe you could say, subtle. well, hang on, that maybe, maybe that's for earlier drinking. And if you like a bit of Madeira, really? the earlier drinking, there you go, boom, wait for the Tokai one for later. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and I, I yeah, and and I I also actually thought that the the it was a foodie fizz, mm. you know the if I can say 
generally a foodie fizz, but if being specific, something really like a truffle, if you're going to go posh, a truffle risotto or, or, or a nice creamy chicken and mushroom casserole, something yeah. quite rich Ooh. and earthy. Nice. Um, so it was a bit quirky, but but really good. Um, mm, yeah. So so then the final wine, uh, the, the sherry, the sherry finish, Lustau East India Solera mm. it was. Now, this was, a, again, a really interesting one because at first it didn't impress us. Mm. It just seemed mm. actually a bit, wasn't we disliked it? It just seemed yeah. a bit bland, a bit neutral. Mm. But then over time, and we, we did try these wines over over a few days, didn't we? Over time, we, we just slowly kind of grew to love it, um, mm. which I think is always a, a great sign in wine tasting. Yeah. Um, mm. it's, it's a little bit more austere in style than the other fortified wine um, wines that Justin had used. It seemed a little bit drier too, but that was good. It was. It was. Mm. It was subtle. It was a bit of a sleeper. Yeah, um, yeah absolutely. You, you've you know, got it, it there, haven't you? I have. It, it, it's a fascinating tasting all round. You know, we've got the bottles here, surrounded by them, tasting them as we go, which you could probably tell. But you mm. know, overall, yeah, it just really brought home how much difference dosage can make to a wine, didn't it? It absolutely did, and and not just in terms of character. You know, which can work or, or not work, but also just balance and completeness mm. as, a, as a drinking yeah. experience. Yeah, totally. So let's bring in Justin, uh, maker of these wines, experimenter-in-chief. Um, and I asked him why on earth he did this experiment in the first place. Um, well, Peter, you know me, I get easily bored and I have a curious mind. And I, I remember back in the day, uh, my dad used to have these parties at uh, um, Christmas time and he always used to serve champagne cocktails. So we would get uh, 50, 60 champagne glasses, put a little sugar cube in the bottom, soaked in Angostura bitters, and then cover the sugar cube in brandy and then pour champagne in on top of that. Uh, I used to rather like these. And as, as someone who was helping serve age 15 or 16, I would frequently put my own glass down and lose it and then have to start a, a fresh one. And normally you just keep topping people up with champagne and then gradually the sugar dissolves and eventually you're just drinking champagne at the end. But I had at least four or five champagne cocktails age 15 which um definitely made the party go with a swing so i have fond memories of that and uh and the fact that you you could take a a, a champagne and make it richer and more exciting tasting with some um some brandy in it and then fast forward till about gosh must be four or five years ago now when uh, i was at one of the gatherings of masters of wine which periodically happen um when really for no reason we just have a, a get-together to mean masters of wine can gather and just have a chat with each other and because one of the sponsors as you know of the institute um has for a very long time been um champagne house bollinger frequently bollinger is served at these occasions but there are also occasions for people to bring along bottles of their own wine so we had a lineup of some quite interesting wines that people have brought along and quite a lot of bollinger and we were chatting and as the evening wore on we decided to see if it'd be quite a good idea to adjust the dosage of the bollinger with some of the wonderful sweet wines and fortified wines that were ranging the room. So we had a little play and thought it was fantastic fun and uh, really worthwhile. And the the thought continued. So I started um, having a play with base wine for my sparkling wine, Heart of Gold, uh, and, and my drinks cupboard, um, and decided that this was something we really should do. So um, it's took a phone call to Simon Roberts at Ridgeview, which is the, the winery we work with to produce the Heart of Gold. Uh, and he, he was up for it. So I went down there with some, a set of bottles and we did some trials and we came up with these um, levels of dosage that we, we actually uh, put into practice. So what were your expectations? You know, what were you sort of really hoping to achieve beyond having a bit of fun? 
Well, I, I mean, I think there's a genuinely interesting historical uh, fact that in Champagne, they used to put all sorts of things in the dosage, brandy being one, but molasses, um, you know, who, who knows what they put in. In fact, the rules around what can go in the dosage are very unspecific. You can put a lot of things in the dosage. It doesn't even have to come from the Champagne region. The brandy certainly didn't. So that gave us the idea that the, the president was there to do something interesting. And... I'm quite interested in the in, in the way that drink categories are bleeding into each other these days. So we know you can get whiskey in a port barrel or in a sherry barrel. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, Gosnell's mead, and you can get hopped mead, which has got uh, hops in it. Tastes a little bit like beer. Um, you uh, The cider producers are fermenting their cider with Pinot Noir skins nowadays. So there's all sorts of ways in which one category is bleeding into another, and I think it's to be encouraged, and it's um, it, all in the creation of interesting drinks. So yes, I think if the flavours are valid and, and and combine well and create something new and something interesting and different and exciting flavour, then I'm all for it. So that's, I guess, that was what I was hoping to try and see if we could achieve. And following on from that, then, what... How do you think that these experiments have gone? Um, what, you know, what, what's your favourite? Do you think something here in these trials has worked to the extent that you're prepared to, you know, put it, maybe put it a bit more in a, on a larger scale commercial release? Well, that is a very good question. And the answer is that we made 18 sets of each of these. I sold 12 to various of my um, customers and have kept back a few, tasted a few by now. I think we've got two sets left. Um, but we recently did a tasting that uh, Richard Bamfield put on at six seven Pall Mall. He was one of the twelve customers of mine who bought a set, but he then very generously said he wanted to open them in a, a assembled group of, of tasters, and so we had the chance to get the view of quite a large group. That we I think there were ten of us in the end. There was a consensus that one was distinctly the most popular. I personally like all of them, and some of the ones that the group liked least, I like the most. So I really like the port uh, finish. But the rest of the group weren't so convinced. So I think there's something, there's some merit in all of the ones we tried. But the, definitely the one that felt to be the most popular was the Tokai finish. Now, possibly because Tokai's got quite nice high acidity combined with that sweetness. Um, I think the wine had a bit more energy and a bit more lift, and uh, that was what it was was praised for. And the Tokai flavors are quite subtle, but you you could you could pick them. So we're actually doing a tasting next week with uh, one of the. Tokai producers and a range of their wines to see if we can produce something that we think works for both of us and maybe we'll produce a bigger volume. So this could be something we see we see more of. It could be. I mean, this is early days. I shouldn't be talking about this until we've decided, but it may not happen. Um, but yes, I think we will definitely be doing another set of special dosage wines this year. And the likelihood is they will be uh, certainly featuring a Tokai and possibly we might go some 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 some, some bigger volume and produce quite a few a few bottles of, uh, of a Tokai dosage wine. You heard it here first. How fantastic. A question for you would be, you know, you, you mentioned drinks bleeding into each other. Wine has sort of heroically resisted this, in, certainly in, in fine wine. Let's put it in, in fine wine territory, which, which these wines certainly are. Do you think, you know, do you think wine should be doing more of this kind of experimentation? Well, look, wine does have some quite strict rules which set what can go into wine and what can't. You know, I've never been a great fan of rules, so... Um, it's quite fun trying to see you know, what could be done if you didn't have such strict rules. But the fact is, we do have rules around what you're allowed to use in wine. And therefore, it's not really likely to be going to be commercially successful to, to produce something that, that bends those rules and be able to call it wine. Look, I think, um, I think this is an interesting experiment. I think the rules 
in this case, do allow for quite a wide interpretation of what you can add during the dosage. And therefore, you know, this is a, a, a perfectly legal product that other people could could emulate. It could become a new category in, in wine, um, sparkling wine with a dosage. In fact, it, it is a category that exists already because in Canada, you can buy wine dosed with ice wine. In Spain, you can buy cava um, that is dosed with sherry. Um, so it's definitely not unknown. I wouldn't be surprised if in Hungary already you can find Tokai dosed uh, sparkling wine from Hungary. Um, so I think we might we might well see more of this in the future. And on the, on that note, people using local products to dose their wines with. What about using an English um, sweet wine or, or another kind of wine? Totally open to that. Great idea. There are not very many English sweet wines. I know Hattingley make one called Entice which I suspect they might be having a play with themselves. Uh, I wouldn't be, you know, if I was them, I would be. Um, why on earth not? Mm. Okay. Justin Howard-Steed, thank you very much indeed. That's a great pleasure. Very nice to talk to you. I'm going to start by pointing out that we have actually already featured that Canadian um, fizz yes. dosed with ice wine yes. on Wine Blast, haven't we? We have. we have. I think we were pairing it with sweet chilli crisps. I wasn't going to mention that. <laughs> Very cool. Oh. It was um, Series yeah. 2, Episode 9, wasn't it? <laughs> it Canada. was highbrow, that one. Canada crisps and beyond. That was fun, though, wasn't it? It was. It yeah. was. Almost well, as it was much fascinating, fun yeah. As, as, as Justin's misadventures, age oh, 15. Mm, now, that sounded fun, mm, too. Yeah, no, I, I didn't want to, those champagne cocktails. Oof, oh, dear. Right. Justin messing, oh, also messing yeah. around with a bunch of master wine he, you know he 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 has some fun doesn't he yeah um, yeah that was that, a bit better that, that was but, funny um, but you know my ears particularly pricked up um when he talked about how drinks categories are bleeding into mm, each other and yeah. how this special dosage fizz might end up becoming a new category for wine yeah who knows i mean it's great to think the tokai finish might become a wider commercial release isn't it uh, there's a scoop right there very exciting oh, yeah right. i mean I, I do agree though that it would be good to try using something a bit more local and mm. um, for example Bacchus yeah. sweet wine if you're yeah, going to be yeah. making it with English English yeah, sparkling yeah. wine well, you know I was chatting to Justin after we finished recording and he said he was partial to a bit of elderflower liqueur as a base for a champagne cocktail so he loves his know. champagne cocktails doesn't I he I know well, that's another episode we need to do <laughs> champagne cocktails with Justin no 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 no, no, um, no. I remember anyway. in my youth um, <laughs> having a bad time with champagne cocktails I don't well, think we we'll definitely go, need we to do won't that go episode back there. now no oh, let's put <laughs> Susie Barry on the rack uh, and find out what oh, that's I'd have rather been on the rack than how I felt after I'd had those <laughs> champagne cocktails, frankly. Well, there's, uh, there's well, so much to uncover there. I think <laughs> this is the right point to move on uh, to talk to Ed Carr, who's also been known to dabble and experiment a bit with his dosage. Yeah, I mean, Ed Ed is renowned for his his magic touch with sparkling mm. wine. Uh, he's, he's chief uh, sparkling winemaker for Accolade, a big group of wineries that includes some large volume commercial mm. releases, but also at the top end, House of Arras from Tasmania. So he's hugely experienced and he plays around with things like oaked wine in his dosage and also brandy or, or grape spirit. Anyway, I asked him to outline his approach to dosage. We really aim to tailor the dosage to the specific wine at that point in time. Um, we don't have preconceived ideas of what the uh, the actual uh, dosage sugar level will will be. We we look all all at balance, and I guess one thing we've really looked at over the time is um, the effect of tannin in that balance, and we try to triangulate tannin, sugar, and and acid to achieve the best uh, balance for that for that wine. So we can manipulate tannin with 
um, the wine that we're using uh, to you know, carry the sugar, um, whether that be an oaked wine or a non-oaked wine. Um, they are just give you that ability just to uh, fine-tune that tannin, particularly with, um, with, with the acid sugar balance, so that we're looking for a very dry style in general. Um, we've found that our premium wines under the Aris brand and our sparkling wines in general have generally considerably dropped in dosage over particularly the last five, five years. And it's with that that we think that if we manipulate the dosage to that level, we, we sort of expose more of the wine to, to the cons consumer. Like you're not getting sugar masking of things. You, you're able to see all um, the individual bones of the wine. And um, I think that's a much more interesting uh, sort of style and flavour. So when you're selecting a, a base wine, when you talk about tannin, what have you found with, with your experimenting with the tannins then? Do, are you looking for, for a particularly low tannin wine? I mean, it's unusual to talk about tannins in this sense, isn't it? Because we're, we're not necessarily, we're not talking about red wines. We're talking about sort of still white base wine. So what is, what is the tannin element in that? Um, our House of Aris wines um, contain up to 10% of a um, of the actual vintage base from that year fermented in uh, first use French oak casks. They can be small format as a barrique or larger fuja, up to two and a half thousand litres. But um, we're looking for you know, a very fine grain tannin uh, and by fermenting in that oak, we obviously carry a very high percentage of that tannin and oak character with it. But then we can meter that into the individual base wine for that year to get the best balance that we can for that, that individual wine from that individual vintage. So our, our range is quite wide. Um, it ranges probably between about 3.5% up to our highest has been about 11. Um, but it's just purely based on taste to get that tannin balance. We're not looking to make an oaked style, so we don't want the oak to be predominant. But um, having that tannin in the base, I think um, really builds some structure and maybe some precursors for other things to happen later with Tom, Tom on Lees that give us the sort of perfect launch to get the wine to, to you know, that final stage. And just 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 explain the the relationship between Lee's ageing and dosage as you've as you found it. I mean in general, the rule of thumb is the more time the wine spent on Lee's, the lower the dose dosage you'll need. Um, you know, you've built up that complexity and richness that you don't need sugar to sort of cover any gaps. But um, with time on lees, I think everybody talks about autolysis and yeast, but to me, it's, there's two things happening. You've got that yeast breakdown after the um, secondary fermentation, but you've also got the wine ageing as well. And um, those two are happening in parallel and in combination. So we look to sort of get that to a point with the time on lees for that wine where we think that's that's hit a, hit a nice balance for us. So um, 
you know, there's there's no formula for that. It's all done on palate taste, really. Um, but you know, we for each one of our labels, we we have what we consider to be like a standard age. That's our target age to release that wine, and we make those wines with that with that idea in mind. Now, you also I understand work with a range of brandies and spirits, and we've just actually tasted a selection of experimental wines that have Tokai, Sautern, Port Madeira or Sherry in the dosage. And of course, you know, historically people have used Cognac, Port, I don't know, Elderberry, Kirsch, Raspberry Brandy as, as dosage. Is there anything in particular that you've experimented with that's worked better than you expected in terms of, of the dosage? In terms of spirits, we're certainly... Um staying away from heavily oaked spirits because we find them too too extractive and too too dominant. It does take away some of the elegance of um, the palate. So we've looked at generally white grape spirit, but at more the sort of tails end, the heavy end of the spectrum. We really look at where we're going to get the most effect. And for us, it's been in that sort of broader spirit, which is slightly... Um, candle wax or lanolin and uh, absolutely tiny amounts of that can uh, really influence the palate and again it's all done by trial and a lot of wines don't don't receive that but particularly some of the younger wines um, that can help just smooth over some of the cracks that might be there and put a general palate sweetness. So what are your feelings on do, on zero dosage and the the trends around lower dosage in the in the world of traditional wine uh, traditional method sparkling wine? We we've got a pretty open mind on that. I guess we um, we haven't made a zero dos, dosage as yet, um, although we're getting very close to it. We're releasing a museum um, blanc de blanc this year from two, 2005, and um, we ended up adding about one and a half grams of actual sugar to that. So one and a half grams per litre. So um, that's the closest we have so so far, but we we tried to vary around that as an, as an example of the lowest possible numbers that we've used. And um, we still couldn't force it much lower without you know, losing something out, out of the balance. I have no issues at all with zero dosage wines if they're you know, if they're refreshing and drinkable um, rather than just just a novelty. How does sugar? You're saying you you haven't got to zero dosage yet because the balance isn't isn't right. So how does sugar impact the flavour and the the quality of these traditional method wines? In younger wines, as I mentioned, I think the sugar does actually impart more approachability some of the acids might be a little bit raw because the wine hasn't had a lot of opportunity to grow around that acid again in the older wines i think um, the sugar plays less of an effect but i can't think of another word other than sweet sweet spot which makes you think i'm only talking about sugar but there's a sweet spot between sugar tannin acid where the wine just sort of is totally seam seamless you know there's you're just looking for that point where you can't find a gap in in that um, final one. Okay, so so looking to the future, final question, and and talking about things that you could do. And um, 
Is there anything that you would really love to try with dosage right now that that maybe commercial concerns prevent you from doing? Not really. I mean, I guess um, that as long as we stay within the um, the Australian wine wine making rules and regulations that we have, we're sort of open to try you know those those different sugars and the different spirits and whatever. But it's not something that we're that we're putting a lot of active focus on right now because we're very comfortable. I guess there's an element of risk in that, but we're very comfortable with with the results that we're um, getting at um, the moment. We've really looked at the bigger picture in terms of uh, oak coopers and which forests and which coopers and which level of uh, toast and char that we want. Uh, that's where our major focus has been been at the moment. And also... Um, with our rosé styles, looking at a red-based liqueur to um, influence the colour and tannin at the final stage of of rosé, um, trying to reintroduce some young fresh fruit in um, to that into that wine, which has been on leaves for for a long time. And so you're trying to get it with rosé to me, trying to get two two wines in one. You're trying to get that really rush of bright red fruit and a little bit of crimson um, colour with all uh, those secondary age characters to back it up. So we go through the same process with our rosés and one of the options that comes in with our rosé is um, using a, uh, a dry red wine that's made specifically for that purpose of low, low tannin, high colour and bright fresh fruit as a um, as the vehicle to carry the um, dosage for for that wine and and it works it works it works well yeah it's just the opportunity to be able to fine tune some of the bright fruit characters and the actual color of the rosé um towards the you know at that last stage that's the manipulation that you've got you've you can do the liqueur then you put your cork in it and then it does what it wants to do after that so is is that pinot noir or mernier or a blend That'll be Pinot Noir. We, that's something we could do. We, we haven't tried Pinot Noir, um, but we really, we have some lovely, you know, vineyard patches of um, Pinot Noir in Tasmania that have by, we've selected them over time, found uh, quite intense flavour and fruit-driven style with a lot of colour, but um, not necessarily a lot of, tannin and the way that we're making them is to minimize the tannin still got to have enough tannin that it's color stable obviously but um just to uh, you know have that last little little bit of an opportunity just to uh, fine tune a rosé style sounds delicious i think it's time we went and had a glass of rosé edgar thank you so much for joining us thanks Susie. it's been great very thought stimulating really i'll have to go back to the desk again yep <laughs> So you're sending one of the best sparkling winemakers in the world back to his drawing board. You and your peanut mania. Well, honestly, I think he's probably just being oh, nice, frankly. Um, but he, <laughs> but he's a thoughtful chap. So you never know. Mm. Anyway, 
Really interesting to hear his take. Um, also on using oat wine for the dosage, how that can change a wine and set it up to age really well. Mm. Um, mm. You know, not just in terms of delivering tannins, which can come from grape skins, but also from the oak, um, but also the flavour and structure mm. and setting the wine up to mature. Yeah, and that's something I think that sugar has a role in too, doesn't it? Um, mm. You know, there is the school of thought that sugar isn't just about sweetening, but also you know, allows the wine to develop extra flavours. You know, so in a, a similar way to the Maillard reaction in cooking caramelises flavours. So sugar enables or encourages similar things to happen over time in wine. You know, that's how long age champagne develops those sort of toasty, biscuity mm. flavours. Um, but if you don't have that sweetness in the first place, you know, that won't happen. Well, and, and yet, as Ed noted, traditional method sparkling wines are getting ever drier, mm, which we've mm. talked about already. So you do wonder how this aspect of the wines will mm. be altered. Perhaps better to drink these lower dosage wines younger, for example. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they talking have of, to uh, age. of drinking younger and of lower dosage, um, we've got a couple more bottles here, haven't we? Which we, have, just reaching we have. Around for. Um, the Arras Brut Elite Cuvée 1601 from Tasmania, mm-hmm. made by Ed, has uh, 3.5 grams of per litre of dosage. Uh, and the Louis Roderer Philippe Stark Brut Nature Champagne as well. Mm, yeah. I mean, I, I, I do love the Arras wines. Um, you know, I tried the, the Grand Vintage um, 2013 recently. Mm. Um, and yeah, yeah, they're, they're extreme. In fact, I've tried it a couple of times recently, and it's 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 just very good. And mm. and this one, you know, the the um, the sixteen oh one has that classic Tasmania freshness, but also with a lovely seamless palate profile. You know, with just a mm. touch of roundness and complexity because it has a small amount of oak, like Ed was talking about. Mm. Um, I don't know about branding on this one. Probably should have asked. Mm. Who knows? Who knows? I have to go back to him, but um, <laughs> it's nice, isn't it? It's, you know, you know. So that's low dosage rather than no dosage. Mm-hmm. So the, the one we got, I've got here, the, the Rodera Stark, is proper zero dosage or, or brute nature, so a slightly different beast. Um, and it's already aged quite a bit too. It's a 2012 vintage. Good vintage, um, great vintage. Yeah, with 15% vinified in oak and no malolactic fermentation, interestingly, mm. uh, which you wouldn't necessarily expect in a, in a brute nature. Anyway, um, and you do get that evolution, evolution here in the aromatics, don't you? They're beautiful, the palate, though. Is very dry. Very dry, very dry. I think some people would love this. It's definitely mm. better with food. You know, we tried it with some um, yeah. deep-fried calamari, didn't we? Mm. And that was gorgeous. Um, but it's not a style that's easy to warm to or, or drink lots of, but it is an excellent, excellent yeah. example of zero dosage. This is all very interesting coming from someone who used to be... Well, it still is something of an expert on this topic. Yeah, well, um, yeah, do my master of wine dissertation on low dosage champagne was a real eye opener. Mm. You know, it was uh, it That's was like... actually back in gosh, t- two thousand and nine, two thousand ten. Are you serious? When it, when it, zero dosage was all the rage, or it was just beginning to you know to to be all the rage, be super yeah. trendy, and and the findings were of of the dissertation were really interesting. You know, the trade definitely preferred zero dosage to to consumers but i i mm. think that is what you'd expect and, yeah. and and what was really interesting for me was that i think during that time i kind of got a taste for it mm. and i think that can happen if you drink a lot of something like zero dosage you can get habituated to the taste if you like and it and mm. it seems normal it's what you start to prefer i think that happens a lot in wine you know um you know winemakers sort of lose touch Sometimes sommeliers, sometimes wine writers too, but particularly winemakers can lose touch with what real people are drinking and what they like. And I think that's happening now 
in the world of sparkling wine. You know, producers are going for low or no dosage because they think it's trendy. Um, you know, so they make it, they get a taste for it, but not really because it's what the wine needs. Um, and the results, you know, let's be honest, in the worst cases, you know, can be pretty revolting. <sighs> revolting just- is strong. I mean, I would say, to be fair, just wines that are a bit out of balance. Or wines, uh, you know, I tell you what it is, uh, wines that could have been so much better if they'd had a proper dosage. You know, that's yeah. often the thing that gets yeah. you. You know, you taste a wine, you think, oh, that's so disappointing because if only the yeah. winemaker had dosed it properly. Yeah, yeah. So maybe intense disappointment is part of that revulsion that I have. But, you know, <laughs> either way, oh, life's too short, you know. Oh, uh, well, you uh, know. Okay. So, horses for horses. You know, to, I compromise. There probably is a place for, for low and no dosage, but it's definitely a niche. Uh, and and it just needs proper thinking through rather than just oh this is trendy let's do that you know mm. um, I mean we were lucky enough to have what was it without uh, what was it I know what you're going to talk about now <laughs> the the 1976 uh, Boulanger RD recently you know which was very low low dosage so it mm. wasn't no dosage but it was three to four grams per liter so extra brute yeah um, but it had just aged beautifully you know in a very particular style it would have aged differently if it wasn't that low dosage i think but it, because it was it had aged very very well it'd been thought through it was a ripe vintage mainly pinot noir long lees aging it was mm. what discoursed in i think it was 2013 wasn't it so 37 years on the lees you know so that works mad isn't it as a very low dosage yeah. style but yeah. you know that is very much the exception rather than the rule yeah and i mean of course there are there are two different things here you know no dosage but also gradually and sensibly lowering dosage, which mm. is pretty much what Ed was talking about. Yeah, so um, I think time now just to hear a snippet from our last interviewee, uh, Louis Rodera, cellar master, Jean-Baptiste Lecaillon, one of the most respected sparkling winemakers in the world, maker of <gasps> Cristal, mm. uh, among other things. Um, and you asked him to tell us about his approach to dosage at Rodera. Yes, we, we have a dosage is a, is a, is a final touch of the wine it's very important because you you open a wine that has been um, kept in a very close atmosphere for so many years uh, very reductive and then you create uh, the first contact with oxygen and uh, the wine is and you remove the leads so we it's another uh, development for the wine so it's 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 a, it's, it's a very important moment in the life of champagne um, what we do at Rodor is that we prepare each disgorgement a long time before, doing many, many trials with different uh, sugar levels for sure, but not only the sugar, different liquor, different base wine to prepare the sugar, different uh, jetting or not jetting, adding some uh, oxygen or not oxygen, different sulfur regime. Um, lots of different um, things, different kind of sugar, by the way, uh, which can be, which which can have a very strong effect. If you use organic cane sugar from uh, South America, uh, or an organic cane sugar from Philippines, or um, beetroot sugar from Champagne, um, or MCR, uh, it's a completely different wine. And do you find that there's something that you prefer or do you just... Yes, yeah. yes. We, we challenge ourselves every year, but now we have a good, good idea. We use a lot of can, organic cane sugar for sure. This is for us the best uh, product, but we challenge our 
um, uh, producers to to make sure uh, we we get the right one and uh, that it uh, it has the effect we want. So dosage often people say ah it's two grams it's four grams it's seven grams but that's not the issue of dosage. This is a this is this is what you use the way you do it what wine you add uh, when you do it and. Uh, if you use jetting or not jetting, what sulfur do you add? There's so many, 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 many parameters that you have to prepare it very meticulously to be sure of your results. And you, I mean, you use your top wines, don't you, in dosage? Yeah, yeah, this is Cristal. Cristal uh, that I, kept, I keep in oak um, and um, that I keep from different vintages. So, for example, now I'm trying, I'm, I'm disgorging my 2018, my collection 243. I'm disgorging with, with some 2000, Crystal 2013. Now, there's been a trend for low dosage um, recently. Would you say um, there is an, are there any other particular trends going on in dosage at the moment? Is it still for lower dosage or is there something different? Uh, I, for me, the dosage, it's not a question of trend. It's a question of what, what the wine needs. Uh, and as we said, the, 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 the wines are getting riper, more vintage-like, more richer in texture. So they need less sugar at the end. Uh, this is why we drop the sugar slow, slowly and slowly. It's not because we want to drop the sugar. It's because we don't need it. Uh, and um, so I think I think we can see we can see some some, some the, the trend to lower dosage is still on now maybe not to brute nature huh? maybe not zero dosage but the trend to lower dosage is on huh? uh, people prefer uh, the wines without with less with less dosage Jean Baptiste thank you so much it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Susie. It was a pleasure. Talk about precision when it comes to dosage. Um, now, we should clarify that MCR is the same as RCGM. MCR. Yeah, MCR. Um, though Jean-Baptiste obviously prefers organic cane sugar for the sweetening, as, as he said. Mm-hmm. Um, he also mentioned jetting, which isn't relevant here, but just to explain is... Sounds a bit rude. I always say jetting. <laughs> well, you might be just jetting off around the world. Well, that's the other, can, yeah, that's the other way of looking at it. Okay. Um, but to explain, it, it's a high-tech process that's, that's done at the same time as the dosage to get rid of the oxygen in the bottleneck before the cork's put in. Mm. Um, he also talks about adding sulphur or SO2, which does a similar thing and and is often added in the dosage yeah, yeah. but it's it's also really interesting to hear his thoughts on the trend to ever lower sweetness levels isn't it mm. um you know for him it's all about balance it's what the wines need because they're being harvested riper and richer you know partly because of, of global warming yeah yeah and if you want to hear a bit more from jean-baptiste on things you know like his winemaking approach and climate change in champagne do check out our, our episode called the new champagne uh, which is totally fascinating. Um, well, even if I do say so myself, it is, it is. It's a lot about John baptiste Where's it? that bushel to hide your light behind? <laughs> uh, anyway, um, I think it's time to wrap things up. So um, I think we need our own version of a special dosage to put the final sweet touch to this episode. Oh, no, uh, no. So no, come seriously. on, you're in a bit of a roll. Um, over to you. <laughs> yeah, okay. Final thoughts, final thoughts. Well, you know, 
People sometimes refer to dosage as being like seasoning or, or salt. You don't add it to a dish to make it salty, but to enable the other flavours to shine. Uh, it's a fine art which involves a great deal of attention to detail. And when it's done well, it can help a wine to taste sublime. Mm. Um, and we'd, we'd encourage more respect for it um, mm. and an awareness of, of the art of... Yeah putting the right dosage with the right wine and for more winemakers to do it properly rather than opting for zero dosage by default. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just to add, uh, you know, I remember doing some dosage trials when I visited Rhoda, actually. We tried three different versions of the same wine with just 0.5 centilitre of different uh, liqueur d'expedition from three different vintages or years. They made a big difference. You know, I love the 96 because it gave the wine a bit more focus and, and a finer finish, much more sort of power and weight mm. and perfume. Yeah. And that, I mean, and that's the other thing. It's not like dosage is a done deal. Mm. There's always a place for experimentation, new things to try and discover. And, you know, maybe as, as Justin says, there's a, there's a place for a special mm. dosage sparkling wine category. Yeah, certainly if there's a place for zero dosage, there should be a place for special dosage. It's all about specialness. Anyway, uh, our time is up, but the debate will continue. Um, Thank you for joining us. Uh, And thanks also to Justin Howard-Sneed, Ed Carr and Jean-Baptiste Le Caillon. Leave us a sparkling review and rating if you can. And until next time, cheers. (laughs) 